I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we'll be looking at verses 8 and 9 on the nature of saving faith. I'd like to begin reading in verse 3 just to remind you this wonderful passage that Peter really launches his epistle with. So I'll read verses 3 down through verse 9. So please uh, listen with ears of faith to the reading of God's holy word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. May God bless the reading of His Word. Well, in verses 6 and 7, Peter has reminded his readers of the joy that they can have in their heavenly inheritance. He describes this faith that rejoices in this inheritance as one that has been tested by various trials to prove its genuineness by its endurance and perseverance. This true saving faith that lays claim to the glory to come at the revelation of Jesus Christ, Peter has more to say about. And so in verse 8 and 9, he really brings this opening section to a conclusion by describing the nature of this saving faith that has this living hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ to obtain this incredible inheritance. And he's going to describe this saving faith in a little more detail. So the first thing he says about it in verse 8 is that it is a faith not based on sight. In verse 8, he says, And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice. So twice in verse 8, he mentions that it is a faith not based on them seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing we can learn about the nature of true saving faith is it doesn't need to see physically the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a good thing that's the case. It's not a blind faith that Peter is talking about. 
A blind faith is the kind of faith that ignores evidence, contrary to evidence, but rather this is, this is no leap of faith, but rather it is a reasonable and justified faith based on the evidence of Christ's death and resurrection, based on the evidence of the empty tomb, based on the evidence of the eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. It is not a blind faith. True faith is, is not faith without evidence or faith in contrast to evidence, but a faith based on the evidence reported by others in the Word of God, inspired by the Spirit of God. But this true faith does not need sight. Now Peter saw the Lord, so did the other disciples, but these readers have not seen the Lord physically with their eyes. So true faith does not need physical sight at all. Seeing is not necessarily believing, as some people would say today. You can still see and not believe. In Luke chapter 16, the Lord said, referring to dives, He said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So you can even see the resurrected Lord and still not believe. And in fact, some saw Lazarus who was raised from the dead and they wanted to kill Lazarus. So just seeing a miracle, there's no no guarantee of, of faith at all. Sometimes they'll produce a faulty faith. In certain cases, faith can be assisted by seeing, as with doubting Thomas. But it's not necessary. Faith does not rely on the eyes. True faith believes God's Word. And that's the nature of true faith. It doesn't need to see. It believes based on the testimony of the Word of God. The author of Hebrews made the same point. When he said, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The conviction of things not seen. And then he went on and described Noah, who believed God's warning about things in the future, things his eyes had not seen, but he believed it. And because he believed it, he went and he built an ark. Maybe it took him 120 years to build that ark. But he, bu- he built that ark based on a faith of something unseen. And many more examples in Hebrews chapter 11 of that. Paul also agrees with this sentiment of Peter. When he said in 2 Corinthians 5-7, we walk by faith and not by sight. And in 2 Corinthians 4-18, he says that the inner man is renewed while we look by faith not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. In other words, the eternal weight of glory waiting for us. We haven't seen that with our eyes. We haven't seen Jesus Christ bodily with our eyes, unless you're Benny Hinn or somebody like that. But most of us haven't had that experience. But you don't need to see the Lord Jesus to believe in Him or see the future glory to believe in it and have a hope in it. And that's what Peter is emphasizing. His readers had not seen the physical Jesus during His earthly ministry or in His resurrection. 
So nevertheless, faith can be encouraged by sight and physical evidence, but it doesn't need it. Faith rests primarily upon what is revealed in Scripture so that faith does not ultimately come from within, but from above to have that kind of faith. That's why when Peter made that incredible confession about Jesus Christ, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, that Jesus said to Peter in response, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonas, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. So when we read the Word of God, the Father reveals. He gives us eyes to see, spiritual eyes to see the glory of Christ. And we make that confession. Christ is the Son of God. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. But you don't need to seem in order to, to believe. We don't seem now. We don't see Him exalted at the Father's right hand, engaging in this high priestly ministry, interceding for us. We don't see Him adorned in glory with all the angels and the saints in heaven now praising Him. We don't see that, but we believe it. And we look forward to the day when we will join that heavenly thong in praising Him. We also know that in the Scripture, Jesus once said that faith not based on sight is blessed a blessed faith. Remember referring back to doubting Thomas as we referred to him. On the day of resurrection, when the Lord appeared to His disciples, Thomas wasn't there. And the disciples said, we have seen the Lord. And how did He respond? Unless I see in His hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into His side, I will not believe. He had a weak faith. A week later, Christ appeared again. Thomas was there. Jesus said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas responded, my Lord and my God. But what's interesting is what Jesus then said to him. He said, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. In other words, your faith this morning in Jesus Christ, a faith not based on you seeing the Lord Jesus in His risen glory, is a blessed faith. Your faith is blessed because you believe without seeing the Lord Jesus. And that's the heart and soul of true faith. It believes the Gospel message. I don't have to see Christ to believe in Him. And I don't have to see the future glory to believe it's waiting for us. So that we are incredibly blessed people living 2,000 years after the earthly ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we believe in Him. This room is full of people who believe in Him. And that faith, not based on sight, is a blessed faith. You are blessed to have that faith in the Lord. So the first thing Peter really rejoices in in them regarding is the fact that they do not see Him, but they believe in Him. The next thing he mingles in with 
the true nature of faith. It's not based on what we see. It's based on belief in the gospel, in the word of God. But he adds to this in verse 8, even though you have not seen him, you love him. You love him. So that the true nature of saving faith is that it produces love for Christ. Now there's different words for love in the Greek language. This happens to be the word, the common word agape. It's not a based on emotional love. So you say, well, what does it mean to love Christ? Well, it's not based on emotions. Other words in Greek for love emphasize that more so, but not this particular word. This love really emphasizes more of a commitment of the will that seeks what is good or better for another. It's more of a selfless love, an unconditional love, a love that that moves me to do something to be a blessing to someone else. So when we love one another, that's the nature of it. It's not based upon my feelings or my emotions. It's based on a commitment of my will to do what is good for someone else. Now when it comes to our love for Christ, that's translated in the idea of me in loving Christ, have a desire to obey Him, a desire to please Him, to honor Him, and to worship Him. Our love for Christ is in response, of course, to His great love for us. In 1 John 4.19 we read, We love because He first loved us. We love Him because we know by faith who He is as revealed in Scripture and what He has done for us as revealed in the Word of God. In 1 John 4.10, John writes, And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So when we understand that Jesus Christ came and was the propitiation for our sins, that draws forth our love for Him. Now that's a big theological word, propitiation. What did Christ do to be the propitiation for our sins? Well, that word means He removed the wrath of God that we deserve to bear. He removed the wrath of God by dying on the cross, taking our sins upon Him, and taking all of that infinite reservoir of wrath that we deserve, and He took it Himself and suffered the pain, the curse, the wrath of God for our sins as our substitute. He removed God's wrath from every believer so that now we can celebrate the truth that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God will never condemn you. God will never bring a single drop of His wrath upon you because Christ absorbed it and endured it all. He became the propitiation for our sins. And that truth, that love, should draw forth our love for Him like the light and warmth of the sun draws forth the bud of the flower to open its, its petals open all the way and then to follow the sun across the sky. It's that great light of His love, that great sacrifice of Jesus Christ that should draw forth our love 
to Him in response to His great love for us. We respond to this love by loving Him in return. And this love is primarily shown by a desire to obey Him, to keep His commandments, to seek to please Him and honor Him and glorify Him. So as a believer this morning, how much do we love Christ? True saving faith has that love for Christ. Well, if you're like me, a lot of times you feel like that my love for the Lord is certainly not what it should be. And even though His love for me is infinite and eternal and unchangeable, yet my love for Him sometimes is fickle and sometimes it can be diluted by the things of the world and the love of other things. So how do we grow in our love? Well, if our love is in a shriveled condition, then we can nevertheless, by the grace of God, follow means to stir up that love afresh. I'm reminded of uh, that event in Luke chapter 7 when the Lord was invited to go eat a meal with Simon the Pharisee. You remember the story well, I'm sure. The Lord walked into Simon's house. He took a seat. And a sinful woman followed him in and stood at his feet as he was reclining and began to weep. She wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair, kissed his feet with her lips, and anointed them with perfume. Simon the self-righteous Pharisee became indignant. And Jesus knew that. He knew his heart. Because he said, if Jesus only knew what kind of a person this was that was touching him and kissing him, then surely he would send her away. And so the Lord told a little story about a money lender that had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50 And He forgave them both their debts. And Jesus said to Simon, Simon, which one of those two people do you think would love Him more? And Simon rightly responded, well, the one that He forgave more. The one who He forgave 500 denarii as opposed to the one who only forgave 50. And the Lord said to Simon, Simon, I came into your home. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wept my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she has not ceased kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. And her sins have been forgiven her because she loves much. And then he says, he who is forgiven little loves little. And the converse of that is that He is forgiven much, loves much. And that's a key to growing faith. Growing love for Christ. It's an awareness that I have been forgiven much. The more I'm aware of my sin, my fallenness, my undeserving nature in terms of ever entering to the presence of God, the more I will glory in the sacrifice and love of Jesus Christ. And the greater my love for Him will be in return.
But if I think my sin is just little insignificant stuff like Simon the Pharisee, oh, I'm, I'm basically a good person. You know, surely I'll get to heaven because I have more good, good deeds than bad deeds. And Simon was blind to his sin. He was self-righteous. His sin was just little sin. So the forgiveness that he would ever receive from God would be just a little forgiveness. And that would bring forth only a little love. But if true faith loves the Lord, the greater we're aware of our sinfulness and our depravity and that I deserve eternal hell, then the more my love will grow because I see the greatness of His love for me in dying on the cross and paying the penalty for all of my many and great sins. And that should draw forth a greater love for Christ. So the kind of Love that faith produces is a love. Yeah, it it varies with us. Some days it's greater than others. But the more I realize the the greatness of my unworthiness to go to heaven, the more I see the worthiness and greatness of Christ's love to die and save me, then how that should respond and grow and pull up my love to be greater to the Lord Jesus Himself. We are great sinners, whether we see it or not. And yet, Christ's love is greater than all our sin. He was suffered on the cross that we might be saved. So not only is the nature of true saving faith not relying on sight, what we see, it's also a faith that responds in love. And if you need a greater dose of love, contemplate your sin and contemplate the cross of Christ and glory in His sacrifice and pray, O God, increase my love for You. The next element of true saving faith He gives also in verse 8. And He says, And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now this is the second time that Peter has referenced the importance of the reaction of joy in our faith. We saw it up in verse 6. In this, referring to the great inheritance that God has given to us, you greatly rejoice. And now again in verse 8, you haven't seen Him, but you love Him, and you believe in Him, and you greatly rejoice now with joy inexpressible and full of glory. This great rejoicing, you know, the way he describes it here, it's almost like it's the kind of joy we'll have in heaven. It's, it is great, you rejoice greatly with joy and expressible and full of glory. It sounds like we're in heaven. And, and that will be a great joy when we get to heaven. It will be far greater than anything we can experience in this life. But I think Peter still is saying that these believers had tasted that joy even though he describes it with such heavenly terms, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Well, the the future joy, of course, is something again that uh, our future inheritance will have. When we're there with the Lord, when He comes back and we enter into His presence, He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. And in the presence of God is fullness of joy. But we can taste some of that now. I think that's 
how I would have to understand what Peter is saying here. We can taste the first fruits of that now. In heaven, there'll be no more sadness. In heaven, there'll be no regret. No more discouragement. No more disappointment. No more depression. No more having the blues. No more unhappiness of any kind. No more anxiety. No no more uh, worry. Now we mingle our joy with that stuff because we still have to endure it. Then our hearts will be ever overflowing with joy. Now our joy is somewhat hampered and hamstrung because of the world in which we live. But nevertheless, there's a joy here that we can experience. Now, Peter describes as being inexpressible. And I guess maybe I would say that the joy is inexpressible, at least in the sense that we find joy in the gift of Christ, which our minds cannot fully understand or communicate. The gift of Christ is something we understand, but only at a little level. So that the joy that we have in Christ is somewhat inexpressible because we can't fully fathom and express the glory of the cross and the resurrection. Maybe that's what he has in mind. He also says this joy is full of glory. And that glory is, again, tied up with the Savior who is glorious. The inheritance which is glorious. And we can taste some of that even now in this life. But Peter is just expressing to these believers that their faith has produced a, this measure of joy. And it's not the fullness that is yet to come when our joy will be pressed down, shaken together, running over. But it's a foretaste. But it's linked with that same kind of joy that we can have now. You know, it's interesting. People today in the world are always looking for a joy that lasts forever. But they'll never find it in the world. Only Jesus Christ can give a joy that lasts forever. Mankind has ever sought after this kind of a joy that lasts, but again, they won't find it in the world. You won't find it in unbelief. Voltaire, who is an infidel of the most pronounced type, wrote, I wish I had never been born. So much for him finding joy. You won't find it in pleasure either. Lord Byron lived a life of pleasure if anyone did, and he wrote, the worm, the canker, and the grief are mine alone. So worldly pleasure can give you temporary pleasure, but not a lasting pleasure. You won't find joy in money. Jay Gould, the American railroad magnate, one of the wealthiest men of his age in the 19th century, had plenty of money. On his deathbed, this is what he said. I suppose I'm the most miserable man on earth. Money can't buy you joy. You won't find it in political position or or fame. Another Lord Beaconsville enjoyed a lot of fame and position in life. And yet he wrote, Youth is a mistake. Manhood is struggle. Old age a regret. He didn't find it. And you won't find it in military conquest or glory either. Alexander the Great conquered the known world in his day. And having done so, he wept in his tent as a young man saying, there are no more worlds to conquer. He didn't find joy in that either. Where then is real joy to be found? Simply only one place. Jesus Christ. 
And He's a joy that we can have in full in the future. But you can have that joy now in Christ when you rejoice in the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of heaven yet to come. Because whatever you might have in this earth, you can lose it. And will lose it eventually. So don't build your joy on that, but build it on the solid rock, Jesus Christ, who is there forever. His blessings He will never withdraw. The Holy Spirit produces this joy in the life of God's people as we focus not on our problems in life, but on His promises. When we feed our minds upon the promises of God and don't dwell on our problems in life, then we can have more of His joy. The Word of God will always bring us back to Christ and always bring us back to His grace and His love, which ought to give us joy. But if I'm always focusing on my problems, my worries, my troubles then that joy will oftentimes evaporate like a drop of water on a hot skittle. Skittle is not the right word. Kettle, what do you call it? Skillet. Hot skillet. Skittle, that's the candy, isn't it? Or whatever. I'm trying. But when we focus our minds on, on the Scriptures, the Spirit of God produces this joy based on God's promise. We don't see the fullness of our blessings now. We may have a lot of troubles and trials in life now. But if I focus our attention upon God's promises, the future glory yet to come, then we can discover that joy based on His precious and magnificent promises. David wrote in Psalm thirty. His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Your shout of joy is coming. It's coming for every believer one day. And let that expectation give you joy in the night of weeping. Don't focus on your troubles. If you do, you'll be like a beaver that Stick by stick builds that dam that cuts off the flow of the river of God's joy in your life. Oh, here's another problem. Oh, look at this problem. Oh, what about that problem? And you just create a dam that blocks off the flow of God's joy. So blow it up with dynamite. Blow it up with the power of the Word of God. The promises of Scripture that will blow up part that mental blockade and tear it down so that we can find hope and joy in the promises of God. Habakkuk lived in a day of great distress. He wrote a short little prophecy book in the Old Testament where God had told him to prophesy the coming invasion of the Babylonians into Judah. The Babylonians were going to come and invade and destroy the land. As a prophet of God, you can't write about that. You can't have the Spirit of God tell you that in a word of prophecy without your soul being burdened tremendously. But in the midst of his great inner turmoil, he found joy in the promise of God that after the destruction came, God would return to his people and restore them and bless them and rebuild them again. And this is what he wrote in chapter 3. I heard and my inward parts trembled and the sound of my lips quivered 
Decay entered my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and He has made my feet like hind's feet, and makes me walk on my high places." So in the midst of all the struggle and the discouragement and, the, and just the depression of what was coming, he found joy in the promise of God. That even though the land was devastated and nothing was productive, nevertheless, God was his Savior and God would return in mercy and grace to the people. In other words, in the midst of his great turmoil and trial, he found joy in the promises of God. That God's promises gave him that sense of rejoicing. And that's why David could say in Psalm 119, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. That's the key to growing in joy. Get your mind off your problems. Get them on God's promises. And let that replace your gloom with His heavenly joy. Well, real quickly, in wrapping up in verse 9, Peter says, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This faith ultimately has secured your future salvation, which is primarily in mind here. And notice that salvation is the outcome of your faith. Not faith plus works, but faith alone in Christ alone. That's what guarantees your future salvation. We've already been saved in justification. We're gradually being saved in sanctification. But we will be ultimately, gloriously, finally saved when we're glorified. And that's ultimately, I think, what Peter has in mind in verse 9. But that gift of salvation, past, present, and future, we receive by faith alone. To add anything to faith in Christ is trying to build a tower of Babel to reach heaven. But you're just building it out of a house of cards that the slightest breeze will cause to come tumbling down. It is faith in Christ. He's the solid rock. He's the door. He's the one alone who opens up heaven for the sinner who wants to be forgiven. So it's by faith and faith alone And the outcome of that faith is the salvation of your souls. That faith which brings salvation is not a passive faith or a complacent faith. It's an active faith. You don't just receive the gift and then go live the way you want to. It's actively seeking to love Christ, to believe in Christ, to serve the Lord. Peter says, sorry, Paul says in Philippians 3, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what true faith should do. Pressing on to the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. The salvation of our souls does not exclude the body. The body will be glorified as will the soul when Christ comes back.
So what Peter wants to do is to stir up our faith. The faith of his readers to embrace the glory to come and to find joy in it. And though they're experiencing various trials, as we may be as well, you've got to remember who you are. You're chosen pilgrims and aliens. And you've got to remember who Christ is. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. And you've got to put your faith and trust in Him and in His promises. Though we're pilgrims and aliens in this world, we're on our way to our heavenly home. And as Spurgeon said, little faith will take your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. And the greater faith and trust we have in Christ and in His promises, then the greater heaven will be brought down into our soul and the greater love we will have for Christ. The best the world can offer is a joy doomed to wither and die. Only Christ can give a joy that lasts forever. So keep your focus upon Christ, upon the Word of God. Your faith will grow, your love will grow, and your joy will grow. And may God make that the case with us. So let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, for this uh, wonderful epistle written by Peter to turn our mind to the glory to come. And it's not that we so focus on it that we become passive and idle in this life, but it's to motivate us to love You more, to find more joy in Christ, that we might better serve You, that we might be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So Father, just give us a greater foretaste of the glory yet to come. Grow our love for You as we see the greatness of the atonement of Christ for our sin. And as we see the future inheritance waiting for us reserved in heaven, Lord, may that future joy that we will experience then fill us with present joy that we can experience now. Thank You for all that Christ has done to bring us this great and glorious salvation. For we pray it in His name. Amen.